You know, we've got a problem, those of us sitting here this morning, and I don't mean because we're not out on a boat or on a golf course or working in the yard. We've got a problem because we know too much. Every student here is going, yep, I know. Just tell my teachers that. I know a lot. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we who are calling ourselves Christians. We know the story of Good Friday and Easter so well, just like the kids in the Early Childhood Center Children's Talk a little bit ago. That little guy, I mean, he's just a little munchkin, and he just spit that baby right on out of there, didn't he? We know it so well, we can toot it out as the story is retold year after year. I mean, our minds, they can easily drift towards Easter baskets and Easter egg hunts and Easter dinners with family and friends. Now, our problem is no matter how we read this story of Easter and how many times we hear it week in and week out, it's not new news to us anymore. We've heard about Jesus' arrest. We've heard about his beatings. Oh, that's too bad. About his crucifixion. Oh, that's bad. We've heard about his Easter resurrection, yay! We've heard about that all our lives. It's no longer new and exciting. Well, I say that because thinking back for our lesson today, we, we come on Peter and, and the other disciples, those guys who were following Jesus those uh, almost three years just before Jesus died and went to heaven afterwards. Peter and the other disciples we're hearing about and seeing and experiencing all this stuff that we hear repeatedly. They heard it for the very first time. And they didn't know what to do with the information. I mean, it just was mind-boggling to them, the thought of their master being killed in Jerusalem. It just simply staggered them. They, they had no categories for it. Kind of put your mind back in their shoes, so to speak, their sandals. Let's take a look at what these folks did and then think what we might have, how we might have responded. Because you know where I'm going eventually is, how do we respond today? But that's a little later on. Well, Jesus, this morning, as we're looking at this, he kind of drops a bombshell on his closest followers. He tells them what's going to happen to him very shortly. Okay, so far, so good. But what does he say? He said he must go to Jerusalem. Okay, I can do that. And then he said, I must be killed. <gasps> but I must be raised on the third day. What? I mean, Peter and his buddies, their jaws just dropped. What? I, I don't get it, Lord. None of it makes any sense to them. Now, in this section that I'm talking about this morning, just before Jesus tells all this to the followers, he had just heard the pronouncement made by Peter, who made this magnificent statement of faith. Jesus had asked the, the followers, hey, what's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? And Peter, big and bold as Peter always was, said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Kind of sounded like Ozzy Hoffman, didn't he? Well, Peter was right, of course. And Jesus responded with high praise. To Peter and the others he said, you're blessed. And you didn't learn this from men, but you learned it from God. And then he points at them and says, upon this rock, meaning their confession, their faith, I will build my church. And I give you the keys to the kingdom. Wow, now that is pretty heady stuff. Felt good. They liked that praise. I would rather have praise than criticism, wouldn't you? Well, they did too. But then the bomb fell out of 
what Jesus was saying. Now, Jesus talked about his death. And Peter did what we generally do when we think someone that we love is talking, crazy talk. He pulled Jesus aside so he could set him straight. And he says, never, Lord, never. This shall never happen to you. Twice he told Jesus never. Woo. It's as if he thinks Jesus has momentarily lost his mind. Now, I assume Peter was trying to convey his support. I mean, wouldn't you? That would seem to make sense. I mean, Lord, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it at all. I mean, there are 12 of us. We'll keep you safe. I mean, they're going to have to go through us to get to you. You're safe. Kind of puffs out his chest with enthusiastic pride, saying, I'll protect you. In fact, the text says Peter rebuked Jesus, rebuked the Son of God. Rebuked? I mean, was that really a smart move on an inspiring disciple of Christ's part? Probably not. And so we ask, as we pause for the first question, why did he do it? Why was Peter thinking, what was he thinking of when he pulled Jesus aside and chewed him out? Rebuked him, he said. Well, first, I don't think it's necessarily real hard. And that is, Peter didn't do it to hurt him, right? Or he didn't do it to belittle Jesus. I mean, Peter did it because he loved Jesus, just the opposite. He wanted to spare him the pain of crucifixion. Great attitude. Great motivation. Way to go, Pete! But resulted in wrong actions. So he didn't do it to harm him, convinced of that. Secondly, Peter did it because he didn't fully understand God's plan. Ah, I think that's a big deal. I mean, Peter's view of Jesus as the Christ, remember Christ is a title. Jesus is his name. Christ is a title. That's what he does. That's who he is. So Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what Peter had just said, and he was right. You're the fulfillment of all the promises back from Genesis on. Well, Peter's view of Jesus as the Christ didn't include the shame and horror of public crucifixion. That's not what he thought. I mean, here's the paradox of Peter at this point. I mean, just seconds earlier, he had made one of the most profound declarations anyone has ever made. You're the Christ, and he's right on target. Good for you, Pete. But in his mind, he had no category for this suffering servant concept or the crucified and dead son of God. No, he simply couldn't grasp how someone as good and holy and pure and righteous as Jesus, the promised Messiah that Israel and all the world had been waiting for, would knowingly and willingly suffer and die like a common criminal. No, this does not compute. I'm convinced, thirdly, Peter rebuked Jesus because he thought he knew God's will better than Jesus did. Oops. I see a little 21st century mind coming in here, maybe some of my own mindset. The reality was Peter wasn't helping, even though he thought he was. You ever do that? You think you're doing something good and you find out later, well, that was not a good thing. Didn't turn out the way I had intended it. My motivation was good, but man, that went belly up fast. Fourthly, Peter had bought into the politically correct mindset of his day. You see, Peter assumed that a person could have a kingdom without a cross, without the suffering thing. You kind of inherited it. You, you, you had it coming to you because of who you were. And that's, if you're the Christ, this is just going to be yours. And that was the mindset of the folks back then in the Jewish community. 
Now, living in the 21st century, we really don't have a good understanding of what crucifixion meant to the Jews in the first century. We've talked about it all your life, I'm sure. And we've, we've shared with you different how horrific it actually was. But what it meant to the Jewish mind of the first century was the ultimate instrument of public torture. And they say, yep, I know, I've heard that. Maybe lynching would be a, a close modern equivalent, something unexpected, something horrible, something you don't just do to the good folks, but it's someone you consider to be bad. And what do we do? As we look around the room here, I'm sure many of you have a bright, shiny cross to remember Jesus' death. And, and that's good, keep it up. I've got a number of myself, my family and all that. We have them throughout the house. We have them throughout the church. That's great. It's a great reminder of the death of Jesus. But you've got to keep in mind, no Jew 2,000 years ago would have understood such a revered demonstration with a cross. I mean, to the Jews of Jesus' day, that cross meant a brutal and public I mean, he's out at the edge of town, up there, generally naked, generally in horrible situation with the flies and birds and all that, bloody, painful, agonizing, shameful, slow, days perhaps, death. That's what they thought of when they see a cross. Not a pretty decoration in a home or on a wall. I think perhaps a more modern counterpart of the Holy of how crosses were viewed. So you hang a picture of maybe a gas chamber at Auschwitz concentration camp in World War II instead of the cross here. That would be a little closer to it. But wouldn't that very thought of a gas chamber just sicken us? Put that in the place of the cross of Peter and his fellow Jews. I mean, I can fully understand why Peter rebuked Jesus. He didn't want Jesus to go through that. Now, we know, of course, through hindsight, Peter was wrong. Even though he had good, even loving intentions, Peter took wrong actions. Ah, I hope you're getting where I'm going with this whole thing. I mean, for Peter, to help Peter get the total picture, Jesus really tied into Peter. I mean, Jesus knew what Peter had just said. He heard it, and he commended for him. But now he looks directly at Peter and the boys and proclaims, Get behind me, Satan! Whoa, ouch! I mean, that had to hurt. I'm just trying to help Jesus. Remember, just a short time before the incident, Jesus called Peter the rock. And he says, you're blessed, Peter, and you disciples. You didn't learn this from man, but from God. He says, upon this rock, talking about the foundation of faith, the, the belief that they had come to know and, and were to pass on, upon this rock, I will build my church, and you are the spokespeople. And I give you the keys of the kingdom, kingdom opening up heaven, closing the kingdom of God. Well, seconds later, the same Jesus calls Peter Satan. <laughs> Talk about confusing. I'd be confused, wouldn't you? I mean, after the wonderful things Peter just was told by Jesus, I can picture the flattery words going to Peter's head. Perhaps he was maybe feeling his oats a little bit. After all, if he was the rock and his the keys to the kingdom, surely Peter had the right to kind of pull Jesus aside and do a little iron sharpens iron kind of thing. You know, one man helping another, that sort of thing. Peter was totally out of line in what he said. Because Jesus knew the bigger picture, Peter didn't. 
Jesus knew that Satan stood behind Peter's well-meaning but mistaken words. Here we're getting to the punchline. Satan's plan for Jesus always avoided the cross. Remember in the wilderness when Jesus had started out his ministry almost two plus years earlier than our lesson for today? Satan had taken Jesus and tempted him with three things. One, he to a high mountain, offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, if only Jesus would bow down and worship Satan. It was seductive. I mean, Jesus, why go through the pain and shame of the cross? Worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now, even though Peter wasn't conscious of being used by Satan, he was truly doing the devil's work. He was doing the devil's work by attempting to keep Jesus from going to the cross. You see, we as Christians know and understand the critical truth about Jesus' journey from heaven to earth. Why'd he come? I mean, every little kid knows the story from Sunday school lessons, from the Christmas services that we have. They know that Jesus came down, took on human form, and went through all of life assuming man's burden. Why? So that he would come to earth to take man's place, that the journey had to include at its core a trip to the cross in order to provide salvation of the world. That's why Jesus used that word must so many times. He must go to Jerusalem where he must suffer and must die and must rise from the dead. If you read this the next time you do, catch that word must. You see, nothing would happen by chance. Very intentional. I mean, even the fierce hatred of the Jewish leaders fulfilled God's eternal plan. And that's why the Bible speaks of Jesus as the lamb slain before the foundation of what was planned. It had to happen for his mission to succeed. Now think of the contrasting views and kind of put ourselves in these contrasting views, see where we fit. I mean, to Peter, the cross, ooh, evidence of failure. To Jesus, the cross was the very purpose for which he came. To Peter, the cross meant Jesus had been defeated. Oh, such a shame. To Jesus, the cross was the means by which Satan was defeated. To Peter, the cross meant evil had won the day. Obviously, he's dead. To Jesus, the cross was the path to final victory over sin. To Peter, the cross meant Jesus was gone forever. He's dead. You don't come back from the dead. You're through. To Jesus, the cross was the path to final victory. Jesus, the cross, led to an empty tomb. To Peter, the cross was a badge of shame. Only the bad, evil, corrupt would be crucified. To Jesus, the cross brought salvation to the world. To Peter, that cross meant they had no message to preach. Why bother? He lost. Satan won. To Jesus, that cross became the message that they would preach to the nations. And finally, to Peter, that cross, it made no sense. It made no sense. Why? But to Jesus, the cross displayed the wisdom, the love, the foreknowledge and plan of God. Because it was true then and it's true for you and me today, my friends. There is no way of salvation apart from that bloody cross of Jesus. For it was on that cross that the wrath of God was satisfied.
The price of sin, our sins, just as we always talk about at the beginning of our services with our confession that we're sinners, the only way that gets paid for, that our guilt removed because of Jesus on that cross. So here's kind of a big takeaway for today. You know, when Jesus was saying to Peter and his followers, you become a stumbling block to me. Remember that part? I mean, Peter used a word for an animal trap that was triggered by a means of a stick. See that stick there? When the animal going underneath that trap brushed that death stick, that's what it was called, the trap closed on him and ends up dying. Well, Jesus knew Peter's well-meaning words were like a death stick to God's plan of salvation. So with that in mind, let me suggest a few things for our consideration as we leave here today. First, good men and women, and I put you and me in that category, we sometimes do the devil's work even though we don't realize it. That means we've got to be thinking about what we do and say, don't we? Peter was most certainly a good man. I mean, his boastful but misguided words cannot cancel out his brave statement of faith that he made just a bit earlier. Though it was undeniably right in what he said earlier about Jesus being the Christ, he was just as wrong about Jesus not going to, some, to the cross. Sometimes good folks do the devil's work even though unintentionally. That means we've got to be thinking all the time, don't we? Secondly, for you and me, our victories, those things that we pray about it, we ask God's help, it seems to happen, whether it be job, family, health, whatever it might be, and we're excited. Our victories and defeats often come back to back, however. If victories can easily build our confidence, yeah, I did it, look what I did, look how that happened. That's okay, even good, to be thankful for the, the opportunities and the blessings we have, absolutely. But when Peter heard the wrongful things said to him, you have to wonder if all the nice things said went to his head. Because just as quickly Peter became pumped, he just as quickly fell flat on his face. What that means for you and me is Satan knows you better than you know yourself oftentimes. And he knows the best time to trap you. He understands it often comes after some great victory. Celebrate the victory, absolutely. But while we celebrate, oftentimes our defenses are down and we start getting pumped up and thinking, look what I've done, look what I can do, aren't I good? We may not say it, but we think that sometimes. And our emotions take over, our guards are lowered. And what do you think Satan's gonna do then? Whoosh, sweep in and try and knock our feet out from under us faith-wise. And so we say things or we do things that we may later regret as a result in our confidence. And thirdly, this one kind of smarts a little bit, and that is oftentimes our closest friends, they sometimes become our worst enemies. I know it's a very familiar phrase, but there's a lot of truth in that. And in this case, Peter's loyalty wasn't in question. What he said, however, was foolish and wrong and reflected wrong thinking, even though deep down he truly loved the Lord. It wasn't a bad motivation, but that's what makes this so tricky for you and me today in navigating our lives. We might find our loved ones, those people that we trust and care about, those people who we depend on and they depend on us, we might find our loved ones unwittingly becoming dupes of Satan, tools he uses to get us sidetracked spiritually. 
our current culture, all the stuff that's going on around us on the internet, all the, the stuff that points out how bad God's stuff is, this morality, Christian morality, oh, how terrible that is. You are keeping people from a truly enjoyable life. That's being duped by things that shouldn't be. Tools that Satan uses to get us sidetracked spiritually. A lot of truth in this one moment. We're praising God. We can do that here in church. Walk out these doors, next uttering some foolish, unkind, critical remark. It should probably be better left unsaid, but we say it anyway. And we can pray, and we're going to in a moment, aren't we? And then go out the door and swear like a sailor. And we can quote scripture, as many of you do and can, and hope you continue to do so. But then turn around and enthusiastically gossip about our neighbors, friends, family. We can testify for Jesus. Jesus loves you. And that's true. But then play the fool in almost the same breath and going, Jesus? Don't know the guy. In fact, I dare say these sorts of temptations to say and do, and, and sometimes they conflict, would more likely come oftentimes from a husband or a wife, a co-worker, close friend, parent even, a child, close relative, or a friend we've known forever. You see, in their attempt to protect us, oh, you don't want to get caught up in that. I mean, we should go golfing today instead of going to church. You know, we should spend our money on, on a new gadget rather than helping a mission of some kind. We should be spending our time on educational things rather than teaching our kids how to pray. In their attempt to protect us from what they perceive as danger or wasted energy or money, often those closest to us may be Satan's tool to keep us from actually doing God's will. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to the cautions and honest questions of love. Absolutely, you better, because they do ultimately, hopefully, have your best interest at heart. But sometimes they sense something we have missed, and that's a good thing. But other times they may be a death stick to our attempts to serve the Lord. So discernment, caution, knowing what God does say, knowing what God does expect, knowing what Christians believe and teach as opposed to what the world is saying is the right thing. Satan did everything he could to keep Christ from the cross, didn't he? You can bet he does everything he can to keep you, my friends, from taking up our cross and serving him. For many folks, what Satan wants us to do is have that padded cross, not too uncomfortable. Keep that shiny cross, not the horrific death instrument that it is. A comfortable cross. I'll take up my cross as long as it's not too heavy. A cross we can wear under our clothes so that nobody will see it. A cross without any blood or pain, any sacrifice on our part. We need to be reminded, my friends, there's no way of salvation apart from that cross of Christ. For it was on that cross that the wrath of God was satisfied. The price of sin was paid, our guilt was removed, and those who would enter heaven, that's you and me, we must go by way of the cross of Christ. Apart from Jesus, no hope, no heaven, no forgiveness, no salvation. We wrap by noting how close heaven and hell are in the human heart. It's just a short trip between one and the other. Peter, prime example. He's called blessed in verse 17 and Satan in verse 23. And that reminds us how we must always be on guard 
that things can change very quickly. In part, who we hang with, that's why it's important to be with other folks of Christian values as much as you can to help us encourage in our own walk. It's also a comforting story which reminds us of the good news that even though you and I may fall or fail, as did Peter, with the help of God and His power in our lives, we can get up again and again and again to thank Him, serve Him, be used by Him until He finally calls each of us home to heaven. Good news indeed. Amen.